0: I like the comparison between our work woes because mine is that my microphone arm is broken and I have to hold my microphone this entire time.
1: Ah, well, if I hear a big bump, we'll know that you've hit yourself in the face with the microphone.
0: Yeah, we just dropped
1: it. (laughs) It's just like a...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I found out it broke last week and I ordered the part from Amazon and it said delivery date pending for a whole week now. Oh. So whether it will oh. ever arrive, we shall see. They really train you to get used to like, OK, well, it's just going
2: to arrive tomorrow. And then when it's like, it's going to take three days, you're like, <gasps> what? Three
1: days? <laughs>
0: <laughs> three days? Is this the Stone Ages? It's instantaneous now, right? I order food and it arrives 10 minutes later on my doorstep. The funny part about that,
2: when I grew up, I grew up in um, London, not your London, but our London. And it was a test center for McDonald's.
0: Oh, And so
2: they would have all these different things that they wouldn't have anywhere else. And when I was in high school, they piloted this McDelivery program. And, you know, you'd call the phone number and they would deliver you your (laughs) French fries and whatever else. (laughs) And it was like what is this? No one is ever going to use this. This is the dumbest thing ever. No one wants McDonald's to deliver food <laughs> to their house. This is so not going to last. And sure enough, it didn't. The pilot went horribly. Everyone was like, yep, 100%. Nobody ever was going to want McDonald's delivered to their house. Meanwhile, here we are. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say 20 years later, but I know it's. I, I know I need to add a 10 to that. And you know, food delivery services is like the main way to get food. My kids don't even like. They're <laughs> like, why would we go there? It's like five minutes
0: from our house, Mom. We can just have someone deliver it. It's not a bad experiment to be a part of, really, is it? Testing out whether McDonald's needs delivery. <laughs> Now I'm hungry, Sarah.
2: I'm sorry. You can probably get it delivered faster than your microphone arm part. (laughs) (laughs) I for sure can, yeah.
1: I feel like we probably talked about McDonald's way too long.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Introducing our new sponsors.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like instead of reviewing McDonald's, we should probably talk about some of our own reviews.
0: Yeah, because we've been on a break and we've had some amazing reviews since we've been away. Can
1: we appreciate how smooth that segue was? I feel like I've been practicing, but...
0: You're not rusty at all, Matt, not rusty at all.
1: My god, was that was that smooth.
0: Very well done. <laughs> it's like you've been doing this for a number of years.
1: This first one, Fancy Bear Grunge Nostalgia. Did we is this an episode title that we came up with? Because it doesn't seem familiar.
0: That was the name of our last episode, Matt. Yes. It
1: was. Okay. Yes. I'm obviously a few episodes behind.
0: I'm glad you pay attention.
1: Uh, oh no, last episode of the season, now I'm crying in the bath, stress eating chocolate, which is exactly what we asked for, which is great. Yeah. Love the show so much that I'm crying in the bathroom eating chocolate because I'm so heartbroken over the team taking a break. Love you all. I, I, I didn't even take any time off during this break that we had. I literally just did other work. I feel like I should have taken a holiday and I now, I now a little bit regret it. See,
2: I consider these podcasts the break. these are my breaks.
1: that is true as well
2: i don't have like regular stuff i can just come and have fun these are like these are like the highlight i'm telling you so i'm i'm super excited that we're back from our break i love
1: that that's good that's good this other review that i really like is we ask people to express anger sorrow all the emotions at us taking a break you know, complain as much as as you can. And, and this one I thought was great. I was wondering whether I was missing episodes, and it was just revealed to me that they do episodes every other week. Uh, like, you know, a little bit of a jab there at us not doing one every week. Additionally, now that they've announced that they're going to be on a break for a few weeks, what is this world coming to? I want more episodes, not fewer. <laughs> I'm going to drown my sorrows consuming too many cookies. Five stars for the very <laughs> Very entertaining and informative podcast, but five sad faces for the break.
0: Oh, crying, sobbing emojis. There. there
1: you go. I feel like you got enough complaints about the break, Anna.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think we're ready to dive into some Watchtower Weekly.
0: I think but, you're but right. But the big
1: question that I have is, did I do the interview this week? You did, Is it, yeah. is it the one that I did? did? Oh, it's a really good one. I enjoyed myself greatly on that.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that later, Matt.
1: Okay, sorry.
0: <laughs> Stick with the flow, Matt.
1: I even did a ruin, and went off the question sheet. Like, I was looking over all the questions and I thought, yeah, these are really good questions. Like, you know, Anna's done some good work at prepping this. And for the one time... I go off off question. I was like, I'm going to ask a slightly spicy question.
0: Yeah. And I totally have already cut that question. (gasps) Oh,
1: you haven't. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, we will leave everybody wondering what brilliant spicy question that I asked the person who used to work in the White House.
0: It was totally not a spicy question either. (laughs) (laughs) I love what your definition of spicy is, Matt.
1: Okay. All right. This review, uh, while doing the Podcast isn't isn't working for me now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump into some Watchtower Weekly, which is our regular segment named after 1Password's Watchtower feature, where we discuss and dissect some of the latest security news and recent data breaches each episode. This week, our first story is a big story that broke while we were away that is Apple suggests iMessage and FaceTime could be withdrawn in the UK over law change. Now, sometimes I think these are empty threats, right? But Facebook really did just remove the entirety of their news. You can't post news to Facebook anymore in Canada, right?
2: That's correct.
1: That is wild. So this one is a bit different because obviously iMessage and FaceTime are are pretty linked to the iPhone. And Apple has recently announced, uh, they've said, planned changes to British surveillance laws could affect iPhone users' privacy by forcing it to withdraw security features, which could ultimately lead to the closure of services like FaceTime and iMessage in the UK. The firm has become a vocal opponent of what it says are the views of the UK government against online privacy, and said that last month, provisions in the forthcoming online safety bill could endanger message encryption so apple's latest concerns center on the investigatory powers act which gives the Home Office the power to seek access to encrypted content via a technology capability notice. So end-to-end encryption, which ensures only the sender and the recipient of the message can see its content, is a key tech privacy feature and is a hard-fought battleground between governments and tech firms. Apple said that the changes included a provision that would give the UK government oversight of security changes to its products, including regular iOS software updates. The Home Office consultation proposes mandating operators to notify the Home Secretary of changes to a service that could have a negative impact on the investigatory powers. So Apple wrote in a submission to the government that such a move would, in effect, grant the Home Secretary control over security and encryption updates globally. So basically, like, you know, they don't know whether you're in the UK or not. And so this would basically mean that either the UK is on its own separate branch of, of iOS now, which is, how do you mandate that, right? Like, how do you decide who's on holiday in the UK? Who isn't? Who signed up with a UK credit card? Like, all that kind of stuff. So the proposals would essentially make the Home Office the de facto global arbiter of what level of data security and encryption are permissible. That's how Apple wrote it. The comments implied that encryption products such as FaceTime and iMessage could ultimately be endangered in the UK. Apple said it would never build a backdoor into its products for a government and it would withdraw security features in the UK market instead. So end-to-end encryption is the core security technology for FaceTime and iMessage and it is viewed by Apple as an intrinsic part of those services. Together, these provisions could be used to force a company like Apple that would never build a backdoor to publicly withdraw critical security features from the uk market depriving uk users of these protections apple said the company said that the proposals would result in an impossible choice between complying with the home office mandate to secretly install vulnerabilities into new security technologies or to forgo the development of those technologies altogether and sit on the sideline as threats to users data security continues to grow which is an incredible line that Apple have taken there. And and to be honest, I kind of think the right one. Obviously, a branch of this that lives just within the UK is really difficult to do. We're not talking about Facebook that just kind of turns off features based on, like, which country you sign in from. These features are sold with phones. It's software installed at, like, a hardware level on the phones. That, in alone, makes this a lot more Technologically difficult to employ, let alone the precedent that this sets, that a country can just determine something that you need to then deploy. I mean, it would be a different thing if it raised the bar, but I think it lowers the bar. And then you've got all these other countries, especially the EU, that kind of are raising it for their people.
2: I think it's interesting because we're all up in arms when we're we're thinking about, you know, well, this company has a backdoor in this and, oh my goodness, it's been discovered that this was a vulnerability and they've really been spying on us. And, and now it's kind of like, well, this government wants to do it. So yeah, that's probably fine. Like, no, <laughs> nobody wants these backdoor things. Like the whole point of, you know, trying to do anything is so that you're trying to go in knowing, okay, I'm doing this and it's secure and I'm doing it in a way that's going to make my life easier. And I'm doing it in a way that's not going to end end up with like everything getting revealed all over the place and then to turn around and now it's the government that's got to install a backdoor because I mean not only that let's face it the government doesn't have the best history with what they do with their information but also their software practices are not exactly current so if they can have a backdoor you guarantee yourself that the people who know what they're doing with computers are going to be able to use that backdoor and repurpose it for what their services are and, and whether their services or not I'm kind of glad to see Apple doing it. I'll be interested to see how it works, though, in the, the long run, because it's a very big difference. Like, do we all of a sudden end up with a new model of iPhone where it's the, it's the UK iPhone edition? Does,
1: does that mean I can go to another country, buy an iPhone and then uh, bring it back here? Because that is exactly what I will do. <laughs> the, the thing that gets me is how much iMessage and WhatsApp and all of those types of things have been used by the government, especially Boris Johnson recently who didn't hand over his uh, WhatsApp password and decided instead to say that he had lost it. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure, you know, from a legal sense, I'm absolutely sure he did. Uh, They somehow managed to get into that by him mentioning his password to someone else or something like that. Or maybe they brute forced it. I can't quite remember. Maybe he wrote it down on a post-it note and left it somewhere in his office. (laughs) But like they managed to get into his old WhatsApps after that. But yeah, I think all of this is being done under the guise of child safety online, which, you know, is an absolute problem and and one that we should concentrate on solving. I don't have any confidence that even if this backdoor is installed, that will magically be righted and that we will be able to solve that issue. And I think it's a, a massive invasion of privacy in order to solve something that I'm not confident that they will solve regardless.
2: It's not like, you know, with all of the resources and all of the information they already have and all of those efforts that are going into this, like, you see the frontline folks who are on the the front line out there trying to work and help with these human trafficking issues and exploitation cases. They have a lot of that information. It is usually the justice system that will fail them. It's not the actual investigation side of it. They have the information. It's not a matter of, like, do they have the right data or not? It's just... We just don't seem to have the ability to apply it all properly so by giving them more data it doesn't help any of this I don't think there's a there's a good solution to come from this and I, I understand the the urge to try and make it better but like you said Matt like it's not like a magic bullet here where it's like ah if we just get rid of an end-end encryption we'd be able to solve all the world's problems like let's be realistic here folks
1: oh not na I think let's talk about Google blocking staff's internet access to reduce attacks. So this one's from Bitdefender. And according to reports, Google is blocking some of its staff from accessing the internet in an attempt to enhance its cybersecurity. So some employees at Google will have internet access from their desktop PCs significantly restricted with only internal web-based tools and Google-owned sites such as Google Drive, Google Maps and Gmail accessible. It's a pilot program, and staff will not also have root access, preventing them from running sysadmin commands or installing software. There seems to be a certain irony in the company whose uh, whole existence was the embracing of the internet to deny it some of its staff. Google self proclaimed mission, after all, is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. According to a report from CNBC, Google originally selected 2,500 employees to participate in the scheme, but after receiving feedback from its workers, it allowed staff to opt out And ask for volunteers to participate instead. So ensuring the safety of our products and users is one of our top priorities. We routinely explore ways to strengthen our internal systems against malicious attacks, explained a Google spokesperson. I'm going to say, uh, like, I don't know where each of you uh, are going to come down on any of these stories. (laughs) But this one in particular, I kind of think fair enough. If you have everything to do your job, like, obviously they're going to make sure of that. Then why not? I think this one's fair enough. You know, if you work for Google, this is a Google device, you're on a Google campus probably. This is their decision.
0: Yeah, I read this and I thought it was like an interesting take on keeping your employees secure. It does kind of seem a bit extreme. I guess as an experiment and a different approach, it could be worth a try. But like, I don't see why there's a problem with just trusting and training your staff. But... I still respect the slightly left ball, wacky approach here. I don't know. It
2: seems odd to Like the whole thing, like you're saying, Matt, though, like w- what are you doing <laughs> with your computer if you're not, you know, especially given all of the different surveillance technology that's out there already on community devices at work, you know, it's very, it's just very odd. Like I, I don't quite get it. Like to me, this is very much a, if I'm trying to reduce attacks, I would think instead of it being an an end-to-end situation, I'd have like, this is my farm room, and this room here doesn't actually connect to the internet unless Sally goes and plugs the cord into the wall. So for the most part, we're all just going to do our computing locally, and we're going to do our designing locally, and everything happens within this little box. You know, wouldn't it be easier just to have a non-internet room? And then that's where all the development happens on those machines. And then if someone wants to use the internet, they're using their phones or their personal devices like i don't know it just seems very odd to me if the whole point is just to reduce attacks like you know if someone has a password <laughs> they're gonna have a bad password regardless of whether they're using a google site or whether they're using you know if they're on another if they're using a bad password they're using a bad password that's what's going to get you attacked
1: i think actually like they won't be able to access any external websites so almost like the the password point they, they won't need passwords because everything I imagine would be under kind of the, the Google's like single sign in option. And so if you have no access to your to your bank's website from in, inside work, that there really is like there's zero. They're cutting out all of the risk here. I, I think the downside from this is what they're probably not calculating in is that they hire lots of smart people. And those smart people, if they really need to pay their Hmm. mortgage, will find out (laughs) some way around this, right?
0: And also, it's going to be interesting to see, like, the impacts on productivity. Is it going to make employees more productive or less productive because they don't have access to the internet?
1: They definitely still have access to the internet, right? Unless you take someone's phone off you, which then at that point becomes a little bit weird. But... They definitely still have access to the internet. They're accessing it through their phone, which is worse. I think will be worse for productivity. No longer am I running a YouTube video in the background while I'm doing work. I'm looking at my phone. (laughs) So this next one is the former CAO accused of faking cyber attack to cover theft of $500,000 from Manitoba municipality. Of course, Manitoba being the central place that you think of when you think of cybersecurity, A former chief administration officer stole more than half a million dollars from a Western Manitoba municipal bank and then tried to cover it up by fabricating a story about a cyber attack and altering documents. This is this is a TV show waiting to happen. It really is. The the lawsuit accuses the the CAO Amber Fisher of breaching her contract through criminal, fraudulent and unlawful conduct. It alleges that between September 2020 and July 2021, she made 33 transfers, all totaling about 515,000 from the municipality's bank account to her own. How do you feel like you're not going to get caught? working for a bank and then transferring <laughs> the money from the bank to yourself.
0: I do admire the guts to try and pull something like this off, yeah.
1: Yes. In, like, 33 transfers. So what's 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 that on average?
2: It's got to be, like, so my guess is is that it's every payroll. So every payroll, she's submitting some sort of bogus payroll oh. expense. And she's like, oh, yeah, I had to do this because, again, we're in COVID time. So I'm working from home. I needed to buy a new computer. Here's this. And like every every payroll, she's adding another like bogus thing and like making stuff up. Because she's like the CAO of the city, right? Like, so she's not going to get questioned a whole lot. Just slide it through. She's approving her own paperwork. And then she's getting the money. That's my guess. Because I'm like into this shady stuff. I'm like, I'm right there with Anna. I'm ready to watch the TV show. (laughs) (laughs) It's very going to be interesting to follow and to see how it plays out in court. It's going to be interesting.
1: Yeah. So it also accuses Fisher of falsifying bank documents to hide the transfers. And giving councillors illegitimate reports that cleared her of any fraud uh, and making up a story that she had been the victim of a cyber attack. None of the claims had been proven in court. Fisher was suspended from her role as CAO in the summer of 2021 after the municipality was uh, notified by its credit union that significant amounts of money had been transferred to a bank account under Fisher's name. Because let's remember, when you're trying to steal money from a bank, you definitely transfer it to another account just with your name. She told the municipality that uh, she had been targeted in a cyber attack. And uh, (laughs) that. I mean, even that concept is ridiculous. I was, uh, was, uh, you know, a person who got uh, attacked cyberly, you know. And uh, what did they do? Oh, they stole money from my work and gave it to me. (laughs) Just... Over several months. Over, over several, several months.
2: It was a long... You know, I couldn't even access my email during that time. You have no idea. It was difficult for me.
1: I didn't even notice 15 <laughs> extra grand every month in my account. No, no, 33 over the course of a year. Every... T- like twice a month.
0: If only, hey.
1: I didn't notice 15 grand going into my account every every two months.
0: It's all right for some, isn't it?
1: My goodness. Uh, so... The municipality also alleges that Fisher gave them a draft of fraud examination report that around that time cleared Fisher of any wrongdoing. It was presented as though it was authored by someone else, (laughs) which is kind of brilliant Uh, in late. May 2022, Fisher was suspended again, as well as transferring around 532,000 of the municipality's money to her bank account. The MNP report said that she sent herself payments for about 280 hours of overtime between April and May, adding up to (laughs) another 15,000 in gross earnings.
0: She's working so hard.
1: Just, I don't know. The absolute audacity. The the suit claims that Fisher lied. When asked about the stolen money, did not cooperate with investigators and either spent or disposed of all or a portion of the stolen funds. That's nearly a million dollars.
0: Can you imagine if everyone just started doing this? Like, I know stealing from your employer isn't a new phenomenon, but, you know, we've got people just trying to cover it up as a cyber attack now. And it seems just to be this new trend I feel like we had a story on the podcast a few months back of like a guy in security pretending to be Mm. the ransomware gang or something.
2: Yes, he's the one that changed his bank account. And he's like, well, we won't pay the... Those guys will pay me instead. Like, oh my goodness.
1: How these people don't think they're going to get caught. (laughs) There's no true crime podcast for these stories because it would be so short because there's no mystery involved here, even for the people investigating it, apparently.
0: It's so good.
1: So I think next up is my interview with a guest who i've had on my bucket list of dream guests for a while now i managed to sit down with theresa payton who was the first female white house chief information officer we chatted all about how to reduce and protect your digital footprint as well as how to regulate the fast-moving landscape of technology with things like generative ai it was also such a good chat she had many great tips and i'm sure everybody is going to really like it I'm delighted to be joined today by Teresa Payton on the show, as she is quite the impressive CV. Teresa is one of the nation's leading experts in cybersecurity and IT strategy, and the first female White House Chief Information Officer. She's also a two-time company founder and CEO at security consulting company, Fortalis, and co-founder of Dark Cubed. Those are some great names. Teresa has also been named one of the top 50 women in tech by Award Magazine and authored several books, including Manipulated, Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and Distort the Truth, Privacy in the Age of Big Data, and Protecting Your Internet Identity. What a huge list. Welcome to the show, Teresa. How are things?
3: Oh, things... Things are splendid. First of all, I get to spend this time with you, which is amazing. Great company. I was not told to say this, but uh, I, I use your product. So I'll just put that plug in there. But yeah, I would say things are splendid. I look at the recent advances in technology and I see sort of this enchanting future of endless possibilities. It's such an amazing time right now. And as one of your investors, Ryan Reynolds, aka Deadpool would say, I like to approach each day with maximum effort.
1: That's great to hear. And it's lovely to hear about such optimism in in cybersecurity as well. Like a lot of the time, you know, the outlook is quite bleak, if you have that impression. It's great to hear optimism.
3: Well, you know, it's one of those things, it can be, you know, sort of that there are a lot of terrible things going on right now. But with technology, I do believe we have an opportunity if we focus our energy and attention the right way and have optimism about it. I think we have a real opportunity to leapfrog cyber criminals and fraudsters.
1: Absolutely. So let's wind the clock back a little bit. Can you give us a little background on you and your route into cybersecurity?
3: Yeah, I, I really appreciate you asking me this question because I've thought about this and You know, I would almost categorize this as somewhat either a romantic comedy or a love letter to my fellow humans. So I'm the kid of an enlisted Marine. I set my sights very high as a kid. I dreamed of finding a home where I thought initially I was going to be an international trade lawyer and deal maker. And then I thought once I did all these big, huge international deals, maybe I would run for the U.S. Senate when I was older. But then I had the chance to work on computers in high school, in college at Immaculata University. And I had the chance to work on my master's in information systems at University of Virginia. And there I was exposed to code generators, looking at neural networks, working on sort of the early days of artificial intelligence. And I have to tell you, I was hooked. I then married a US Naval officer and off we went to Mayport, Florida. Now, if you're not familiar with Mayport, Florida, it's a U.S. naval base that's near Jacksonville, Florida. And at that time, I absolutely adore Jacksonville. I was born there, actually. Not really a technology hotbed, but I was so fortunate. After hunting for a job, high and low, I was able to begin my career working in the financial services industry at Barnett Bank, which is now part of Bank of America. And that kicked off 16 years of work in the industry of financial services, Now, you may be wondering, okay, how do we end up at cybersecurity? So in this love letter to my fellow humans, working in financial services, customer satisfaction, it reigns supreme. And anyone that has to run customer systems knows this. You have this grand responsibility. You have to craft systems that customers love. You have to ensure that they're safe and secure in the process. And oh, by the way, the bank needs to be profitable in the process, So when you think about that and you think about the fact that like, you know, in the 1930s, you had Willie Sutton, who sort of as legend has it, people asked him, why do you keep robbing banks? And he said, that's because it's where the money is. And so when you think about that, right, criminals have been going after banks, both in a physical sense and a digital sense at every opportunity. There I am working in financial services, doing systems that customers love, I have responsibility for the safety and security of the systems, of the data, of the customer's transactions. And then my path takes this absolutely thrilling turn. I got the opportunity to serve at the White House under President George W. Bush. And I became immersed in the ways of not just the fraudsters and the cyber criminals that I was seeing in banking, but now I was really exposed to sort of the nation state adversaries and professional criminal enterprises who were doing more than just you know, trying to rob banks and rob customers, stealing trade secrets, intellectual property, causing mayhem. And so once I was immersed in the ways of nation states, I really felt like a clear, resolute and true calling was emerging from the work that I was doing. And as that began to form in my heart and my mind, once I knew I was leaving the White House, I was pregnant with my daughter Maeve. I knew I was leaving the White House at the end of the administration. It really guided this current phase of my career journey. And this current phase, my focus, my passion, my energy, and the reason why I'm so optimistic is I know what I need to be doing, and that is protecting others, whether it's a business, a government agency, or an individual themselves from the ever-looming threats that we have in this digital realm.
1: What a great answer, and what a great journey you took us on there. Moving a little bit from kind of the financial honeypots of where we keep our money to kind of in today's online world, our digital footprints and and our activity online is increasingly the honeypot that attackers go for. Could you explain a little bit about kind of what a digital footprint is and why it might be important for individuals to be aware of their online presence?
3: Yes. What you said was really so brilliant there because... As companies and governments and organizations have done a really good job at blocking and tackling and locking out a lot of potential intrusions. You know, you read about things in the news when things go wrong, but let's face it, bad guys only have to get it right once. We all have to get it right every single minute of every single day, right? And so I'm so glad you said this because it has been a prediction of mine and Melissa and Bridget, who are partners in my firm. We all work together at the White House. Which was as we do a better job on the enterprise side, locking things down, cyber criminals don't suddenly say, Oh my gosh, this is so hard. You know what? I should stop being a bad person and I should be a good person and bake pies for my neighbor. They don't do that, right? And so they just say, Okay, fine. Where is the next weakest link? And they're going after the digital footprint of you, of me, and the people we care about. So a digital footprint, the way I like to think about it is it's like a trail of fairy dust, and it's left behind as we're dancing barefoot through the online world. It is an absolute record of our daily digital adventures. Everything we do, post, interact with, and maybe you say, okay, Teresa, love what you have to say here, but I'm not active online. Chances are the people around you, they are active online. So whether you like it or not, you actually have fairy dust left behind by your friends, your family, your colleagues. So this record of our daily digital adventures, these are like real footprints. They're just in the digital realm. And what people need to know is when I look at the past digital footprints of individuals and anybody else looks at the past, it is actually an incredible predictor of what you're going to do in the future. So you may forget what your patterns of life look like, but looking at your digital patterns of life is a great predictor of where you're going to be next. So I highly recommend that each of us really mind our digital steps. You want to leave a positive impression in the digital wonderland, but at the same time, you have to safeguard your own privacy and security.
1: That's a really good analogy because I spoke to someone who was forensically involved in cybersecurity and they referred to it as skin flakes. So fairy dust is a lot nicer. (laughs) (laughs) What are some practical steps that you think people can take to minimise their digital footprint? And should they take steps to minimise it? Or how might they maintain a higher level of of privacy?
3: Well, I love your question here because on the surface, we're all so busy. We buy these expensive devices to use. Why aren't they secure? We sign up for services. We're told we have antivirus or anti-malware software. Why isn't that secure? Like, why do I have to constantly worry about whether or not I'm secure? And sadly enough, you do have to worry about it. But here's the thing. I have boiled this down to being unhackable or almost nearly unhackable with five steps in 15 minutes or less. This is better than any fitness program you're gonna do in your life, right? So this is like your digital fitness program. So the first thing is immediately consider changing all of your passwords on your online accounts. A really great thing you can do, there's some free services. One that I like is Leak Peak or Have I Been Pawned? I don't type in my passwords. You can type in all the variety of different email accounts that you use. See if they've been in past breaches. Consider using a secure password vault to manage your password life. We've standardized my company on 1Password again. I was not asked to say this. This is not a commercial, <laughs> but it is a great product to use. My sister and I tend to be like the geek squad or the genius bar of the family technology-wise, and so we're actually managing many elders' passwords and thank you 1Password for that opportunity to do that. Number 2, implement multi-factor authentication on all online accounts, and if you are on services that don't offer you multi-factor authentication, You need to tell them, you need to get this in place, or I'm not going to be able to use your service anymore. Multi-factor authentication. So there's a type of attack called password credential stuffing. So that's, you know, they go to the dark web, they see your password, they try different variations on your password. And multi-factor authentication, there was a study done by Security Boulevard. It actually blocks almost 90% or more of the password credential stuffing attacks. Now, I don't know about you, that's a pretty high percentage rate. So it's really worth the annoyance, I know, of multi-factor authentication. Okay, number three, deactivate any dormant and inactive online accounts. If you're not sure, one of the things you can do is just do a search for your name with the name of different social media platforms. You could also do like a free search on your name on Spokeo or things like that. And it'll tell you whether or not it thinks there's some social media accounts that you've forgotten about. Step four, you can do a very simple digital footprint assessment of yourself for free. You could do a much more in-depth one. If you you know, hire a firm, this is something that, that we do for organizations and individuals, but you could do this for free yourself. Pick three favorite search engines, search different variations of your name, and that can give you a really good assessment. And then number five, consider using in your business single-use business domains for things like mergers and acquisitions, trade secrets, money movement. And in your personal life, single-use emails. So if it's not your bank account and it's social media, I would love the idea of burner phones, burner email addresses. I wish they were around when I was dating. You know, it's like, what's your number? Here you go. But burner numbers, you can get Google Voice, you can get Talkatone. Forward it to your real cell phone, and that way you're not handing out your most important email address attached to your most important parts of your life or your cell phone number, which is used for two factor multi factor authentication.
1: So these these social media platforms, the ones that you're talking about, that kind of build up these digital footprints, they've become an integral part of our lives, but they also do pose quite significant security risks. What do you think are some of the common pitfalls that are associated with you know, normal social media usage. And are there any steps that individuals can take to safeguard their, their personal information that they're putting out online?
3: Yes. So the first rule, you know, because again, people are like, oh my gosh, nobody cares about me, or I'm just not that busy, or this is a lot to think about. And it is a lot to think about. So I want to share a charming rule that I came up with that's really easy to remember, and it will keep you safe in the digital frontier. And I call it the grandmom and bad guy looking over your shoulder rule. So if you picture this, on one shoulder stands your dear grandmom. She's radiating all of that lifetime of wisdom and propriety. And then on the other side lurks this mischievous villain who's plotting treachery. So before embarking on any of your online escapades or posting something, ask yourself this, would I be embarrassed if my beloved grandmom was looking over my shoulder and saw what I was about to post. If so, don't post it. And then on the other shoulder, I've got this ominous figure who's got nefarious intents. He's cunning or she's cunning. And could they exploit what I'm about to post to hurt me digitally or physically or people that I care about? And if the answer is yes, don't post, even if you think it's an encrypted platform and things are going to be deleted. So if you embrace this rule of grandmom and the bad guy looking over your shoulder, you're going to be able to have an online journey that's safer and more secure. So that is the number one rule. If you don't remember anything else, just have that grandmom and bad guy looking over your shoulder rule, and you're going to be safer. I would also say, take advantage of privacy settings. You need to opt in to the privacy that you want. They have you for sale these services are all free and because they're free they need to monetize you so if you want privacy and confidentiality you must constantly double check those privacy settings and make sure they're set at the level that you choose to use
1: what great advice there i i have really nothing to add that's such a great point Let's kind of take a, a higher level look at this. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a couple of questions that were kind of societal level cybersecurity. Since your role in the White House, cybercriminals of of course are constantly evolving their tactics as well to kind of exploit vulnerabilities. How do you envision the the future of of kind of digital footprints, especially in the wake of things like AI? Are, are we kind of all doomed as much as people say with AI?
3: So I will say on the concern levels that I have, I am concerned that when quantum computing is here, that matched with generative AI, AI for algorithms, these huge data lakes of information, I am incredibly concerned that passwords will be unlocked at a pace and scale we've never seen before. Because a lot of people don't realize an encrypted password, when today's encryption is nothing but a big old math problem. That's what encryption is. And the reason why it is hard to decrypt something unless you actually have the physical key is you have to work a big old math problem to figure out what the right combination is to undo the lock, to the password. And my concern with the advent of quantum computing, big data analytics, AI algorithms, generative AI is someone with very little technical know-how can now figure out how to crack that big old math problem because they're gonna have the processing power and they're gonna have the technology to do what previously you had to be, an incredible engineer with a lot of processing power. Having said all of that, I would like to say, fear not, we are not doomed. We know what's coming. We have tools that help us take back control. We talked about a lot of those already. And I really do feel like as we think about the guardrails, as you implement, you know, my five steps that take about 15 minutes or less to do to be nearly unhackable, it does empower you to sort of stand against what is going to be coming at us next. I look at the internet of things and AI that can be incredible digital transformation elements if Internet of Things can be implemented securely. So if we think about, I like to call it no-trust architecture. So when you're implementing Internet of Things in your house, make sure you don't trust it. So that means it gets its own email address. It gets its own password. And you actually segment your network where you do your work, or you do your banking, or you look at your healthcare. You actually segment those Internet of Things devices in your house away from the rest of your personal life. You could do the same thing in business. So I believe That the Internet of Things, AI, if we implement them with secure by design principles, that even though there will be digital trails, right? So, this creates more of a digital footprint on each one of us, more fairy dust. On the one hand, it really will be able to offer seamless experiences, incredible conveniences. It can potentially unlock invaluable insights from our own footprints, which can give us better healthcare, perhaps, maybe personalized services. But because it is adding to our digital footprints, I want to make sure we remain mindful of the digital tracks. I would love to say that we need to hold corporations accountable and we need government to create more regulations. But I already see that we got it really, really wrong on social media platforms and thinking how to protect children, thinking how to protect the elderly, how to prevent hate speech, how to prevent misinformation and propaganda from traveling all across social media unabated. So guess what? Big companies and government, they'll do their best, but they're not gonna be able to save us. And last time I checked, it seems like Superman's on strike. So it's really up to you and me to really put forth, what do I want my footprint to look like? Manage my footprint, and you really can do it without taking up too much time, just putting some thought together about what you want your image to look like, and continually double-check on your digital footprint.
1: You made a really good point there about regulation. It is always playing kind of catch-up and backstop, and it is up to us on the forefront. But do you think, like, as the platforms evolve, I mean, I think we are now post-Twitter. I think we can safely say we're post-Twitter. But, like, the next platform that comes along, do you think that we're able to catch up with regulation at all? What do you feel needs to be done there in terms of regulation?
3: Yes. So we already missed the deadline. I mean, just completely missed it. I mean, so, (laughs) but you know what? We can get caught up. And as Deadpool says, so I'm a big Deadpool fan. I hope you don't think less of me for that. You know, as Deadpool says, I love deadlines. I like the whooshing sound they make as they fly by. So, okay, we missed the deadline. That's fine. But we can get back ahead of the curve. So here are three things I would love to see happen. And the first one is international accords and collaborative frameworks. We need to get government leaders together, countries together, academia and industry stakeholders and create more adaptable regulatory frameworks. If we keep waiting for each country to do it on our own, we're never going to get there. I mean, look at the United States right now. We haven't really passed substantive privacy policy at the federal level, we have a patchwork quilt of very confusing privacy policies that have been developed by the state. So I really feel like we need sort of these international accords and collaborative frameworks. The next thing is, again, we have to have ethical guidelines. These ethical guidelines need to be clear, they need to be comprehensive, They need to be written in people speak, not legal speak, so that you and I know what we're opting in to, what we're opting out of. It needs to be done by industry. So for example, healthcare may have their own set of ethical guidelines. So for example, I would love to see it say, you know, for generative AI, at this point in time, based on the technology, we will leverage generative AI for transcription services But we will always have a human being double check the transcription to make sure that patient care is always put first. We need these ethical guidelines so that each industry can leverage the power of this transformation technology, but do it in a way that takes care of you and me and the process. And then the third thing is, and we always forget this part, and this is what will keep it dynamic and fresh as the technology advances and gets enhanced. We have to have continuous assessment and governance. So we need to have, under these international courts and collaborations, underneath these industry-based ethical guidelines written in human speak, not legal speak, we have to have this continuous assessment and governance of how are the technologies going, are the frameworks keeping up, and have some type of a maker-checker rule. So some type of a governance that says, You told us you were going to do this. Are you really doing this? And the last thing, this is kind of my bonus thing that I believe really needs to happen, is why aren't we incentivizing responsible innovation? I don't know what that looks like. My philosophy would be maybe there's grant money to help companies that maybe don't have the level of resources to do responsible innovation. But we really do need to encourage the industry to prioritize these responsible and ethical AI practices. And if we could stick to those four things, again, I do believe the future is incredibly bright.
1: I think that's such a great point, especially on the, the, the kind of the human language uh, of all of these things as well. Like uh, understanding actually what is what is going on here is is really difficult. Is there kind of anything in, you know, some of your key learnings and the things that you were challenged on day-to-day operating at the highest of levels, you know, in the White House that you kind of, you learned from?
3: Really, what I would say to everybody, it always comes down to the human user story. And then based on the human user story, when do they engage technology to do their job, to do a great job? Everybody wants to do a great job. And so when they engage technology, what were they doing in the steps before they engaged technology? And then when they disengage from technology, what are they doing next? So really understanding that human user story, it all comes down to that. Because once you understand that, you then understand where technology gets in the way of them getting their job done, where security is actually a blockade that they have to go around in that moment to get the job done, and that's really where they enter into the danger zone. And chances are the safety nets and security nets that you think are in place are going to be completely bypassed on the path to trying to get their job done for you. And that was my biggest aha. And because we don't do that today is really the crux of why technology and security fail the user. And every time a breach happens and we do the forensics and they say, oh, it was because a user clicked on a link or opened an attachment. I look at everybody and say, that is a failure on us in the security industry and the technology industry, not the user. Never blame the user. It is our failure that this happened. So we have something wrong in our design. We have something wrong in our algorithms. We have to fix this. And, you know, there's always this, a uh, well, the user needs to be trained and the user this and the user that. And I say, no, we clearly didn't understand the human user story. And because we didn't understand it, we didn't design for the human. And you know who really does understand the human user story? And this is why they win sometimes? Cybercriminals. Cybercriminals could teach a masterclass in human behavior. So those are some of the lessons and takeaways I took from sort of the pressure cooker that is working at the White House. And it's an incredible mission there are so many dedicated career people, regardless of who the president and the vice president are, that are there every single day. I sleep better at night knowing, you know, they've dedicated their careers and their lives to serving the executive office of the president and the country that, in that way. And what an incredible honor! I have such gratitude to be able to serve there from 2006 to 2008 and walk those hallowed halls and do my absolute best for everybody who worked there and for the country to protect and defend the mission and operations of the White House.
1: That's fantastic. And, and even working in such kind of high-level societal change, concentrating on the individual person who's trying to use technology, it sounds obvious when someone says it, but like it's really difficult to do in the everyday. So I really appreciate that kind of outlook. So wrapping up... Where can people go to find out more about you, Fortalis, or any of your training courses?
3: Yes, I'm so glad you asked. For starters, people can always reach out to me on LinkedIn if you'd like. I may not be super fast to respond, but you know, just keep at it. We do have a website. So it's www.fortalissolutions.com. And at that website, we actually have an expert's blog. And so we have people on our team who want to share their knowledge. And so they will, from time to time, put some things on the experts blog. We are very active on our company accounts. So we have company accounts on LinkedIn, on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, (laughs) and Threads. And then we do provide training in offensive security, open source intelligence classes, web app security and more. If anybody's interested in that training, we have made it our goal to make training approachable and affordable. Affordable is key.
1: Amazing. All right. It's right. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for joining the show.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on. You're a great host. You should definitely have your own running show. think you could give, I don't know, maybe John Oliver a run for his money. <laughs> so no, thanks for having me on. And 1Password, like just keep up the great work.
0: Okay, so moving on, we have Ask 1Password. And this is just a quick reminder that all throughout the season, you can send us an email or voice note to podcast at one com. That's right. We're going to do voice notes now.
1: How, how is that happening? What's the... How do I send a voice note?
0: Oh, do you not know how to use a phone, Matt? I, I don't know how to do it on an email, though. I know how
2: to do talk to text. I'm confused. Thank goodness you're confused, Matt, because I always worry it's just me.
1: I, t- I don't know how to do How do you email someone a voice note? You want me to send you a recording of my voice asking the question?
2: Yes. Yeah, but we don't open attachments, Anna. <laughs> That's not
0: secure. I don't oh, understand. No. How are we a technology podcast? <laughs> are,
1: are you thinking we're going to play out someone who emails in their question?
0: If they give us permission. Hey, 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 this is Jimmy from the UK calling in. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> Please email in your voice note in the broadest uh, generalised accent that you can possibly do.
2: <laughs> <sighs> I've got a question about
1: 1Password. <laughs>
2: Why well, yes, dears, can I say something?
0: <laughs> Matt, you can just record them as if they were from our listeners.
1: Okay. Please put where you're from so I can do a good regional accent in, in, in reading them out.
0: Yes. You can ask us a question and state what accent you want Matt to uh, read it out in, and he will do just that. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you could ask us a question, or simply write in with any One Password tips, or just general good security advice you have for fellow listeners, or share your thoughts on the show. So you can remain anonymous, or include your name if you like. You can also tweet us at One Password using the Ask One Password hashtag.
1: You can't. You can't tweet us anymore. Oh yes. You have to. Oh, I. What is it called?
0: Exus. What? Exus. X. X marks the spot. Exus.
1: Is it? Zeeting? Yeah, I think you zeet now.
0: Zeet. Oh. Oh, dear. Oh. Okay, but while we're <laughs> here. I just wanted to say a big thank you to all those who submitted to our listener survey, which has been popping off the last few days. We've had loads of responses. But yes, we've now contacted the winner of the giveaway who will receive one year free of 1Password. So if you haven't heard from us, I think you can say you haven't won this time. But there will be more giveaways and chances to win coming up this season. Yay! So I think it's time finally to unveil our new game for this season are you ready i cannot wait okay we've got hacker no hacker so in a world where hacker group names are either genius or utterly awful each week we try to guess if these hacker names are real or fake and after 100 episodes i've upped the production values of this segment because we finally have a jingle you guys ready to hear it
1: i'm very ready Hacker, no hacker, is it real or fake? Ba-doom-doom-doom. Hacker, no hacker, real or a mistake. I mean, that's delightful. (laughs) I enjoy that very much. I mean, I want to sing along, but I don't know the words because I've only just heard it once.
0: Well, you you first heard it as real or a mistake, not real or a mistake.
1: Uh, Yeah, rum is steak. That's, That's how I first heard it, but it definitely doesn't sound like that anymore.
0: That's all I can hear now, though.
1: Hacker, no hacker.
0: That was the first
2: time I've heard it, and I heard Namaste at the end. So that's where I'm. I'm still.
1: <laughs> real or Namaste.
0: Real or a mistake.
1: Hacker, no hacker. Is it real or fake? But doom, doom, doom. Hacker, no hacker. Real or a mistake. <laughs>
2: I feel like my biggest disappointment now, because the problem is we've had this whole show and then you've displayed this. And I'm like, I'm waiting for it to be off. i I need it to have like an accent and in another
0: language. <laughs> like that's where I need it to go. Matt's already done that earlier on today. <laughs>
1: that's been cut once. Uh, can't, it can't be cut twice.
0: <sighs> OK, let's speed run through these. So we've got our first hacker group name, spandit tempest is that real or fake
1: there's a mental image there of someone really angry by wearing spandex and it's quite funny yeah I'm,
2: I'm gonna go with
0: fake
1: uh because of the mental image i think it's made up i i think it's fake
0: i'm sorry you are both wrong it is real there's <gasps> a real hacker group called spandex tempest out there
1: oh my goodness
2: please tell me they like go after victoria's secrets and
0: stuff like that i <laughs> love that Okay, next up we have Grizzly or 6R1ZZLY with some numbers in there. Grizzly, is that real or fake? I think that's too good to be real.
2: I think that's got to be fake. (laughs) I think you've done that one,
1: Anna.
0: Tried to confuse you with the numbers.
1: I'm going to go real.
0: Oh, Sarah, you've got your first point because it is fake. Yes!
1: Right, Sarah, one point.
0: Okay, Titan Obsidian, is that real or fake? Mm,
1: That is
2: fake oh, see i was gonna go real that sounds like a very like bro dudes
0: okay matt you're bringing it in because it is fake hey. oh man next up we have parity doom real or fake
1: i mean i quite like it parity doom parity doom. But the, the angle that you have to come at these from is like the high school band kind of era like you want to be really cool and so you name something I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with this one being real.
0: Oh see, I'm gonna go fake. Sarah's right, it is fake. Yay! Oh. Okay. And then we've got LulzSec. Sec. L-U-L-Z.
1: Oh, this is def definitely real. I think I've even heard of this. I have to say real as well.
0: You are correct. They are real.
2: It's
1: it's too good of a name.
0: LulzSec.
2: Sec. Okay,
1: so I'm on to Sarah's on three. Okay,
0: finally, I think this is my favourite. The cutting sword of justice. Is this real or fake? Oh. Did I make this up or is this real?
1: I mean, it sounds like something from the um, coronation.
0: <laughs> yeah, the king's <laughs> coronation.
2: I think I'm going to go fake because I think if it was just sort of justice, I could do it. I think adding the word cutting is maybe what makes it fake.
1: Okay. I don't know. I'm going to go real because I think CSOJ is like, you know, that's the cool way that kids refer to them.
0: <laughs> it is to my pleasure. Real puffing sword of justice there.
1: Okay, so it was a draw. That was anticlimactic for our first game of that. Uh, <laughs> I feel like next episode we should just carry on the scores. So okay. like this this will be a pause. No one's won, but we'll carry the scores over to next to next time.
2: Oh, you know Rue's not gonna like that. Rue's already coming in at a disadvantage with zero. He is no, and I I, I like winning so. <laughs> i i really want to know about this cutting sword of justice group now because that is a very odd name i need to know what exactly they're trying to bring justice upon
1: (laughs) all right time for goodbye
2: goodbye welcome back everyone
0: thanks for being here welcome back it's good to be back yeah love you guys
2: love you guys bye-bye Bye.
1: and uh you know apparently we cut out the, the, the spicy question that i asked because it wasn't spicy enough so i mean i'm sorry about that
2: i feel like i need to know what kind of spice this was because are we talking like you know my level of spice which is like
0: mild it's like the the pg-13 version of spice
1: i i asked her if she thought that the um current u.s government would actually bring in a unified trust framework because the eu has one and at the moment the industry is kind of clambering for one and i think it's going to end up unified trust framework so how we verify identity across all of the countries so like when you verify your id one way it'll It'll be part of like a framework that is unified across all of the countries. And I wanted to know one, why?
0: <laughs> Sarah has understood now why I cut this question. <laughs> <laughs> I am like, I'm still waiting for the spice.
1: I think that's fairly spicy.
0: We'll need a glass of milk, Matt. It was that spicy.
1: It just, the question, I guess, was a little bit more in depth than than we generally usually ask on the podcast. So Yeah. If you uh, want to hear the uncut version of that question, <laughs> please write in. Please do And we'll include it on another podcast out of sheer force on Anna. <laughs> <laughs>